In the year 1970, in the state of Indiana, uh, just a couple days before Easter Sunday, uh, a mechanic named Ron was putting in a late night at the garage where he worked. Uh, he was working with some flammable materials. Unfortunately, there was poor ventilation in the garage that evening, and so there was an explosion. Now, miraculously, Ron was able to get outside of the buildings, clothes all ablaze. He was taken to the hospital, and the doctors said that they were doubtful he was even going to survive the night. Well, the church where Ron and his family attended, they heard this news. Church members started calling one another, and soon enough, Christians were praying together in their homes and in their church late into the evening and all day the following day. Then Easter morning came around. Well, the church gathered together. They had no idea what was going on for Ron and for his family. And they, they had heavy hearts as they tried to sing songs of praise about Jesus Christ's death, his resurrection, and all these things. And as they were singing, the pastor walked into the sanctuary, walked right onto the stage, stopped the song that was going on in order to announce to the church that against all odds, Ron survived. More than that, the doctors were finally going to be able to treat him for his burns. Well, the church, they just broke out in praise. That was an exciting morning. But then the pastor let him know, look, this is going to be a long journey the family's going to be on. They're going to need a lot of help. So there that morning, the church committed everyone to doing whatever was necessary to help the family. Uh, transportation, finances, meals, anything they were going to do to help Ron, his wife, and their kids during this time. Now that, my friends, that's, that's a church living as family. Well, one of the couples left church that day. They were driving home just in awe of their church family. And as they drove home, this couple, at the same time, they had this sudden realization together. They looked at each other and they said, well, they'd do the same thing for us. If we were in Ron's place, that's what they'd do for us. This couple, their names are Bill and Gloria Gaither, they went home and they quickly wrote what is now a well-known song. In fact, it's the one that we just sang together. I'm so glad I'm a part the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this side, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. Now let's understand, though, what makes us family, church. It isn't simply that we get together in the same place on a regular basis, or that we help each other out in times of need, uh, that we read the same Bible, that we say amen to the same truths. No, 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 those who are in the family of God are those who have been washed in the fountain and cleansed by Christ's blood. In other words, the family of God is made up of those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ. They've gone to him in faith. They've been forgiven by him and adopted into God's family. Now, this is an important thing for us to understand. Because, you see, there are a lot of people in the world and in churches today who think that because they're near the people of God, this must mean that they're near to God as well. Or they think that because they're around the family of God, they must be in the family of God. Just like how in the Apostle Paul's day, there were people who thought because they were Israelites and therefore near the promises of God, that must mean that they were near to God. But you know, it's always been about faith in the Savior. Being born an Israelite saves someone as much as going to church can save someone, and it can't. For the Israelites and Paul's, the question for everyone in churches today is, are you in the family of God, 
Or are you just spending time around the family of God? There's a big difference between these two things. We're going to see that together this morning as we turn to Romans chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and turn there, Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd still encourage you to follow along. You can use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 919. Page 919, Romans chapter 11. Now, last week, Paul talked about the fact that although many of the Jews, they were zealous, they're passionate for God, the problem is they had zeal without knowledge. Uh, They didn't truly understand their need for saving. And so, unlike many of the Gentiles, the Jews, they, they were missing out on the salvation that God offers. Now Paul writes this, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, and it can't be based on works, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. Let's just pause right here for a couple of minutes. So up to this point, Paul's been pointing out that Israel had largely rejected Jesus as the Messiah, so they missed out on that salvation that Jesus offers. But on the other hand, the Gentiles, they were coming to the Lord in droves. Now, this might have led some people to ask, well, what are you trying to say, Paul, that God... God's done with Israel? He just rejected them? Oh no, that's not what Paul is saying. That wouldn't even make sense. I mean, Paul himself was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. Many of the first converts to Christianity were Jews. Now, Paul was never making the point that God was done with Israel. He is trying to get them to understand God did not reject Israel. Israel rejected God. They needed to understand that. That's what they did when they pushed Jesus away. Jesus himself said that whoever rejects him rejects the Father. The Jews who were accepting Jesus in faith, now they could only be described as a small remnant, a small part of Israelites who were doing so. Now Paul compares that to the days of Elijah. Some of you might be familiar with Elijah. Elijah is a prophet of God. He lived in the Old Testament. He lived during a time of really gross idolatry and the nation of Israel. During Elijah's day, this wicked king named Ahab came to power. He was really a piece of work. But you know what? As evil as he was, his wife was worse. In fact, you've probably heard of her. Her name was Jezebel. And so this evil couple, they start pushing idol worship in the land, all while Jezebel is systematically killing the prophets of God. The Israelites, the people, for their part, they fell in line. They, they embraced idol worship. They pushed God away. And then in 1 Kings chapter 18, we read about this confrontation between Elijah, who was a prophet of God, who was confronted, and he was against hundreds of prophets of the idol Baal. 
It must have looked like the most lopsided showdown in all of history. But God showed up powerfully on behalf of Elijah. God brought fire down from heaven. If you haven't read 1 Kings chapter 18, you can go home and do that today. But afterwards, Elijah still found himself in a place of despair. He cried out to God about being alone, and that's when God told him he wasn't alone. No, God said there were still 7,000 other Jews faithful to God. Now, that was a small remnant compared to the rest, but by God's grace, he preserved them during a time of great evil. And in Paul's day, as Jewish opposition to Christianity increased, and as the door to the gospel swung open to the Gentiles, it may have seemed that God was throwing up his hands, that he was just done with Israel. But God hadn't forgotten or rejected the nation of Israel. One proof of that is that there was a remnant of believers among them, like the Apostle Paul. Now, as for the rest of the Israelites who did not believe, this is, this is how they'd be described. Look at verse 7. Paul says, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. Now, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. The unbelieving Jews, they were described as hardened. Eyes not seeing, ears not hearing, stumbling around in the dark. Now don't forget this. God did not cast them aside. They cast God aside. God, in his overwhelming love, lets us choose whether or not we are going to give our lives to Jesus Christ. Now on his part, well, God, God gives overwhelming evidence of who he is. Paul's already talked about this, the evidence of God in creation, the law written on our hearts. Jesus said in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and guilt. But then we must choose. God is not going to force people to love him, to worship him, and to believe in him. And despite the evidence, some people choose to reject him. And when people continually push God away, their hearts get harder and harder. Then the time comes when God gives them over to the hardness of heart that they've chosen. Pharaoh is probably the greatest example that we have of this in the Bible. On many occasions, we read about Pharaoh's story in the book of Exodus, on many occasions we're told that Pharaoh, despite all the evidence and the miracles showing God's power, despite all this, Pharaoh chose to harden his heart and reject God. And it's later that we're told, after Pharaoh freely chose that himself, later we're told that then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see, he gave Pharaoh over to what Pharaoh chose, which is life without God. Spiritually hard hearts. As spiritually hard hearts, they, um, they make me think of something like quicksand. That's how I think of spiritually hard hearts. As a kid growing up, Hollywood taught me that quicksand would be a much bigger deal in my life than it ever has been. And one of the other things that Hollywood portrayed quicksand as is something that instantly sucks you into the heart of the earth the moment that you step into it. But that's not true. Actually, quicksand, it's only, it's only dangerous if once you step into it, 
you actively and aggressively you start to sink deeper and deeper in it. That's where the danger is. Because the deeper you are, the harder it is to get out. And some people, they, they reject the evidence of God, they oppose him, they, they aggressively fight and struggle against him, sinking themselves further and further into spiritual hardness of heart. See, that's what the Jews and Paul's day were doing. That's what many people in our day do, too. Now, is the hard-hearted person hopeless? No. Not hopeless. Neither was Israel. Look what Paul says, verse 11. It says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So here's the good news, Paul says. Israel was not then, and is not now, beyond hope. Oh, far from it. Now, a hardened heart is not a lost heart. There's still opportunities for the Jews to come to faith, and many of them are to this very day. More than that, what we're going to see next week when we finish Romans chapter 11, what we're going to see next week is that one day there will be a great, great awakening among the Israelites. But in the meantime, God has used the Jewish rejection of Jesus for something incredible. That's the salvation of the Gentiles. Now look, understand, the salvation of the Gentiles was always part of God's plan. It was always part of his plan. From the very day that man sinned in the Garden of Eden. In fact, when Jesus commanded his followers to share the gospel, he said that they needed to take the message of salvation to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, that would include the Gentiles. The church began by spreading the message to the Jews, to those who were in Jerusalem. Now, naturally, there were some Gentiles coming to faith in those early days, but the message primarily went to the Jews. But as the Jews began to reject the message, as they began to persecute the church, to become enemies of the gospel, the message found a new home in the hearts of these pagan Gentiles. Paul's own experience showed that. You see, Paul, Paul went on a several of what we call now as missionary journeys. One of the things Paul would do is he would travel from town to town, city to city, share the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he rose from the dead, that we can receive forgiveness through faith in Jesus alone. He went to a new place. He would start by preaching in the Jewish synagogue. But that was the local place where the Jews worshipped. That's what he did. Well, one day, read about this in Acts chapter 13, Paul was preaching in the synagogue, and the Jews, yeah, they rejected the message. So that's when Paul said, look, we had to bring the message to you first. If you don't want it, we're going to take it to the Gentiles. And that's what he did. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul abandoned the Jews. In fact, if you keep reading through the book of Acts, you'll find he still went to Jewish synagogues. But every time they rejected the message, he would go to the Gentiles. That became a main part of his ministry. Jewish rejection led to the widespread proclamation of the message to the Gentiles. 
And salvation of Gentiles was always part of God's plan. Yet the same way that Paul didn't give up on the Jews, well, neither has God given up on their hard hearts. Hard hearts aren't beyond recovery. They're not beyond being reconciled to the Lord if they'll repent and turn to him in faith. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews led to God's grace being multiplied to the Gentiles. And when the day comes, and it will, that the Jews recover and come to the Lord in faith, what a powerful witness they will be to the ends of the earth. But until then, let's not be confused about who is in the family of God. See, everything that Paul has been writing is leading up to what I want us to see as the heart of the message this morning. It takes place here in verse 16. Listen to what Paul says. Listen very closely. He says, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, well, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. If God did not spare the natural branches, therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who felt, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? All right, let's stop right there. So Paul uses this, this analogy of tree grafting. A tree grafting is a, a process where either through a break in the tree's bark or through cutting off one of its branches, a new branch is introduced to the tree. And the tree is attached and it's wrapped tightly. We have a picture of what tree grafting can look like. Trevor, you can go ahead and put that on the screen. And, and so they would do this until the branch attached itself to the tree. And when it did that, it would, it would share in the nutrients and everything from the root. It became a part of the tree, just like all the other branches. And sometimes people do this, it brings increased fruit production, it brings new life to the tree, all sorts of stuff. In fact, there's a guy named uh, Sam Van Aken. He took tree grafting to a whole new level. He developed what he calls the tree of 40 fruit, which is exactly what it sounds like. He took all these different fruit branches, grafted them onto the same tree, and after a number of years, now the tree produces all sorts of fruit. as nectarines, peaches, cherries. We all want one of those in our houses, don't we? And you know what? If you go, you can look that tree of 40 fruit up at home. It's, it's really spectacular to see when it's in bloom. But even more spectacular, in my opinion, is this tree that, that Paul talks about. Familiar with the things that he has written leading up to this part of the letter. All right, I mentioned this a week or two ago. Context matters. It's good for us to know what came before this. But Paul has already shown how in God's great grace and mercy, 
God gave his covenant and promises and law to Israel. This began when God called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we know as the patriarchs, called the patriarchs to be the forerunners of this great nation. And from these patriarchs, from these roots, sprang up the olive tree of God's people. But as Paul has pointed out more than once, being born an Israelite doesn't make you part of God's family. Israelite blood can't save anyone. Yet, many of the Jews thought that that was exactly the case. Well, they thought because they were Israelite by bloodline, because they descended from the patriarchs, well, that they would be saved, that they were a part of that blessed olive tree. Well, that was never the case. In fact, their lack of faith in Jesus showed that they are unfruitful branches to be cut off that will perish. And you know what? As Paul shared this, this wasn't a new metaphor either. Centuries earlier in Jeremiah chapter 11, God described Israel as an olive tree that had been fruitful and beautiful, but then was prepared for the fire, branches to be broken off. Why? Because of unbelief and idolatry. Unbelieving Jews aren't a part of God's people. It's one of the things Paul is pointing out. But okay, how does this apply to the Gentiles? Remember, Gentiles... That includes everybody who's not a Jew. I have a feeling that most of us in the room, we are Gentiles. So how does this apply to Gentiles? Well, look, in God's grace, we Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we've been grafted into that tree, adopted into God's family. As Paul has already pointed out, those who have faith in Christ are the true spiritual offspring of Abraham. We're part of God's people by faith. That's a great thing to praise the Lord for. Okay, but then we've got to ask, what's all this talk from Paul to the Gentiles about being cut off? Is he talking about losing our salvation? We can't be talking about that because in Romans chapter 8, Paul made it really clear that nothing can separate us from the love of God if we are in Christ Jesus. Remember that? So that's not what he's saying. Okay, but here's the thing. There are many Gentiles, like the Jews, who think that being near to God's people, being near God's promises, makes them a part of God's family. Understand something, you can cling all that you want onto a local church, but until you are clinging to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be cut off. Just as God didn't spare unbelieving Israel, he will not spare unbelieving Gentiles, no matter how close you might be to Christians and to churches. But this is what people do today. There are many unbelievers in churches who think that they must be saved. They think this because, well, after all, they go to church regularly. They tasted the goodness of God. They enjoy serving. Uh, they, have a, they have a Bible. They even read it sometimes. They're good citizens, good people. They're considered good church members. They even believe a lot of the stuff the Bible talks about. But the problem is they've never given their lives to the Lord. I was introduced to a man this week who I think his story would fit that description. I was talking to him, and over the course of our conversation, he recited a lot of the truths of Christianity. Hey, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. That only Jesus Christ can forgive us. Those are great things. But as we continue talking, I realized the problem is, even though he knew these things in his head, that man had never called on the name of the Lord in faith to receive that forgiveness. I mean, he was close to the truths of God, but that didn't make him a part of God's family. Now, praise the Lord, 
this week that man did become a part of the family of God when he put his faith in Jesus Christ. He believed in his heart and he confessed with his mouth. Spiritual head knowledge or church attendance or having holy relatives is going to get them into heaven. They don't realize that no matter how tightly they attach themselves to the church, if they don't attach themselves to Jesus Christ in faith, they're going to be cut off and they're going to perish. That's why the question this morning, friend, is are you are you just hanging around the family of God? Don't get me wrong, this is this is a sweet fellowship. But if you want to be with God and with his people for all eternity, you need to realize the only way you can join God's family is through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. We are told this, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That was written to a church, by the way. It's not written to a church. Perhaps it's because there are many people trying to cling to the tree, but they've never been grafted in. They're hoping that by hanging on to churches, they're going to get their way into heaven. No wonder why Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus spoke words that many of my mentors have told me they believe are the most terrifying words in all of Scripture. And I think they're right. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, talking about the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't, didn't we prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons in your name and perform any miracles? Jesus said, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Look, you can do a lot of things in the name of the Lord. You can call yourself a Christian. You can be the most dedicated church member there ever was. But until you give your life to Jesus, you will not be saved. We need to examine ourselves. How do we do that? Let me give you a few practical ways. First, First, ask yourself, did I ever have a moment in my life when I went to Jesus in faith and I gave him my life? I asked him to forgive me. I asked him to be my Savior. Did I ever have that moment? Remember, what did we read last week in Romans 10? It says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or it's with your confess. Our so if we had that moment in our lives, okay, well, some of us might say, yeah, I have, but Andrew, how can I know that it was genuine? How do I know that it took to really receive salvation? That's where you're at. The next, I would encourage you to ask yourself, do you see any fruit of righteousness in your life? Are you a fruitful branch? You see, if, if you're in Jesus, Jesus is in you, you should be able to see the evidence of that. The change he's brought you in. I'm not saying that you're going to be perfect, but you should be able to see the ways that Jesus is making you more holy, more patient, more gentle, more kind, more loving. You can go to Galatians chapter 5 and see more of the fruit that we should see developed in our life. And finally, if you're still unsure, then ask God to assure your heart that you do belong to him. Because what we read about in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8.16 says that the Holy Spirit, who lives within every Christian, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We need to examine 
ourselves. Are we in the family of God? You know, in recent years, been a big interest in uh, family ancestries. You can pay a company, we'll trace it for you. Maybe some of you have done that. It's a pretty neat thing. And I thought about it once or twice, but I'll be honest, I never had a deep passion to learn my family ancestry. In fact, you can ask Casey and she'll tell you that a lot of times I forget the names of my aunts and uncles who are still around. So it's safe to say that family ancestry doesn't interest me too much. But I do have a great interest and desire in being a part of God's family tree. That blessed olive tree that Paul talked about. That, that's a family tree I care about. So what about you? Friend, are you in the family of God? If not, then understand, I love seeing you around here. I'd much more prefer to see you in heaven one day. And the only way to be certain of an eternity with Jesus Christ is to give your life to Jesus Christ. Here's the truth for all of us to understand this morning. It's this. Eternal life does not depend on knowing the people of Jesus, but on becoming a follower of Jesus. A lot of people have missed this truth. Eternal life doesn't depend on what Christian you know, what church you're a part of that you go to, the good things that you depend on becoming a follower Jesus, so have you made that decision in your life? If so, if you're here and, and you can say, yes, I've examined myself and I can say with confidence, I, I belong to God. Well, praise the Lord. If that's true for you, then believers, let's pray. As we close this morning, let's pray that God would help us to bear still more fruit in our lives so that we'd be a good testimony to this world. Because there are a lot of people who need to hear the message of salvation. They need to see what a life changed by Jesus Christ looks like. Let's be those believers. Let's pray God would help us to bear more fruit for him. If you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, never given your life to him. Friend, I don't know what you might be relying on to get into heaven one day, but I promise you, if you're not relying on Jesus Christ, you're relying on the wrong thing. And before you leave, I simply need you to understand that Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine the penalty for us. See, the penalty uh, for, for our sins, the just penalty is to be separated from God after this life in a place called hell. But Jesus died to take the punishment we deserve. And the only way for us to receive his payment on our behalf is for us to go to him in faith, to ask him for the forgiveness that he's offering, to ask him to be our Savior. And if you've never done that, we want to give you the opportunity to do that before you leave. Let's pray together. If that's true for you, if you're here and you know Jesus Christ isn't your Savior, you can't say it with confidence that you're in the family of God. If you're honest, you know that you have been hoping that maybe, maybe by attaching yourself to a church or to good people, you're going to find your way in heaven one day. If that's where you're at, then friend, understand, only Jesus Christ can save you from sin and hell. And he wants to do that. No matter the things you've done, or where you've been, or how, how much you've rejected him in the past, how hard-hearted you might have been towards him and his truth before, know that he is still waiting to rescue you, to bring you into his family, to graft you into that sweet olive tree. The question is, are you going to give him your life? I want you to understand that during this final song, you can come up, talk with me about this, we can pray together, but if you're ready right now, I don't want you to wait another moment. 
I don't want you to be outside God's family for another second of your life. So if you're ready, you can go to Jesus Christ in prayer. And you can pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I don't belong to you. I know that I'm a sinner. But Jesus, I believe that you did die on the cross for me. And that you rose from the dead. Jesus, today I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. And to be my Savior. I'm ready to be a part of your family. So today I'm giving you my life. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who's made that decision, that they wouldn't leave before they tell someone. Because this is a family that wants to celebrate that with them. And for those of us who can say that we are in the family of God, oh, Father, reveal to our hearts this morning those areas where we, we need to bear more fruit. Those areas where we need to grow. And then help us to dedicate ourselves to bearing the fruit of righteousness in our life so that we be a good testimony to others, so that we bring you glory and honor, so that we would have more opportunities to share the message of the gospel with a lost and hurting world. It's an incredible thing to be in your family, Father. Help us to never take that for granted. Help us to wake up every morning excited that we are called your child. Help us to find someone we could share that good news with today. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in our lives as we leave this place. I pray that you would help this to be a church family that is united together and that knows what it means to live as family in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.